As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast with your host, Mike Sipple Jr. Well, I am so excited that you all joined us today to listen to the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. I'm here in the studio with Lynn Rule of Perfect 10 Corporate Cultures. Lynn has had a profound impact on my leadership journey, our succession here inside of our organization, and it is a pleasure to be talking with her today to discuss cultural transformation with all of you. So Lynn, thank you so much for joining us today. Mike, it's so nice to be here. Thank you. So Lynn, let's talk about, let's uh, focus on the phrase of cultural transformation. And part of that is your leadership journey and story, which I would love for you to provide to the listener to really create the concrete example of the things that you've been involved with. Um, but let's also set up some crystal clarity around what is cultural transformation? What is culture? What mm. is, you know, in today's mm-hmm. world, everyone's talking about it, yep. but how do you define it as a leader in this space? And, um, and why it matters. Mm, boy, those are big questions. So let's start at the beginning. How did I get into it? Um, I backed into it accidentally. I was a stay-at-home mom, and I loved my job. And I had a seven-year-old daughter. And basically, the, I got a call one day that changed my life and ended up me here today. Um, basically, that call said that my daughter was talented in gymnastics, and they wanted to put her on a competitive gymnastics team. I didn't know what that meant. They eventually told me that it meant instead of training one hour a week, she would train 11 hours a week at seven years old. And I said, I'm going to call you back. Because what I know about myself is that nobody has that kind of an impact on my daughter unless I know what they're doing. So I went to the five or so gyms that were reasonably close to my home, and I watched the way they trained their competitive athletes. And what I saw made my hair stand on end. I saw that in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1983, we had adopted the Eastern European way of training. Tear the kids down, do that through ridicule, manipulation, condemnation, build them back up into robots that simply were to do what they were told. When I saw all of that, I got so angry. Um, I, when I saw the worst case scenario, I, was, I left that gym and on my drive home, I was I just was beside myself, and I realized that our daughter could not do gymnastics in this city unless we bought a gym. That was my only potential solution <laughs> to the problem. So fortunately, my husband saw the anger in my eyes, didn't want to mess with that, so he said, okay, uh, had our attorney send out letters, which ended up with us purchasing an existing gym in Cincinnati, Ohio. And what we inherited was one of those toxic cultures. There were only 200 kids in the program, and they didn't pay the rent. So I thought, well, let's just kick all these toxic people out and start over. And then I ran up against a belief that I have that people are not disposable. It felt like it was my job as the leader of that organization now to turn these people around, give them a chance to behave differently. What I really uh, also began to understand is that when people are misbehaving, Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, hot dog, another day. I can't wait to see who I can tick off today. You know, they don't do that. Um, They, generally speaking, want to get along. But when they don't, it's often a result of not having the skill to do any better than they're currently doing. 
So I began to teach relationship building skills at the gym to the people who worked there and to the students who were in the gym enough hours, usually the competitive athletes, starting at age four through 18. And I began teaching them. The kids began to behave so different at home, the parents called and asked if I could teach them. And that began a relationship academy and a gymnastics academy running together in this facility. Ten, you know, fast forward to 1996, 13 years later, Cincinnati Gymnastics Academy placed two kids on the 1996 first ever gold medal winning women's gymnastics team. And Mary Lee Tracy, the head coach, and by then the owner of Cincinnati Gymnastics Academy, was the assistant Olympic coach. And because her job was the assistant Olympic coach, her role was to be with the athletes in every workout. As a result of that, she was the coach on the podium with the athletes during the Olympic event. Because that was her role, NBC put a microphone on her, and the world heard for the first time an Olympic-level coach treating athletes as people instead of property. And the backlash was enormous. Coaches from around the world began to come to Cincinnati to figure out how to do it different because no coach really wants to abuse a child. But if they believe that's their only option, they'll do it. And what we found out when they came to visit it is that there had been a paradigm over the entire sport of gymnastics. And that paradigm had two belief systems in it. The first belief was that you couldn't get a child to the Olympics any other way except the abusive coaching method. And then the other belief was that children had to be more afraid of the coach than the skill, or they wouldn't be able to stay safe. Both of those beliefs and that paradigm shattered worldwide in that nanosecond of time. And it's no longer acceptable anywhere in the world to abuse a child to get them to the Olympics. So what I experienced in that was a culture transformation of this little toxic gym into a gym where athletes came and were able, it was safe enough for them to bring everything that they were, everything that they are, everything that they had. And so what I discovered in that, the main thing I discovered in that entire experience is that there is greatness in every single individual in the world, I believe. It is not the job of leaders to put that greatness into people. It's already there. The job of leaders is to create an environment safe enough, emotionally safe enough, for people to risk bringing every idea they've got, every skill that they've got, every dream that they've got to the office, to the organization that they belong to. When that exists, these organizations can soar. This was a gym run by a stay-at-home mom and an ex-Bengal cheerleader. If we can do that, think about what the amazing talent in our CEOs and leaders around the world could do if they just understand that creating this environment safe enough for people to fully come to work is their greatest, their greatest desire and goal wow. as Thank a leader. You. I've heard the story so many times because we've had the opportunity to speak together and we host you as a keynote speaker at events um, and being around you for the last probably decade and a half. Um, But thank you for reframing success and leadership for all of our listeners today and for my life and the way that we lead here in our organization. Mm -hmm. I greatly appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Such a powerful story. Do you hear from the, um, the athletes have, have you had interactions with any of the athletes over the last couple decades? Yep, uh, we do. We have They have a Facebook page, uh, the athletes do, so that they can stay in touch with one another. 
Um, and I've gone, a couple of them have um, bought or started gyms of their own around the country. Um, and so we've gone in to do the work in their gyms to create the kind of environment that they grew up in at Cincinnati Gymnastics Academy. So it's been, you know, it's been, it's continuing to grow. Absolutely. Yeah. That's wonderful. Well, share with us a little bit today on the, you know, individuals know they need to be investing in and thinking about their corporate culture. Yeah. What can, if a, if a individual is already doing that and trying to get better or they're beginning that conversation, they know that today's the day they're Mm -hmm. listening to this. They read a book, they heard from someone, they're seeing things in their own organization. They need to begin investing in creating a healthier culture to build the healthiest organization they can. Um, Can you share, where do you recommend leaders start? Oh, that's a great question. I think you have to start with an understanding of culture. Now, the researchers are still arguing about what the definition of culture is. So there's not a lot of help yet out there around a consensus of what it is. Um, So I'd like to make it really simple for people um, to really understand if, if the definition of culture is not a kind of definition that helps us to be able to work on it, then it's worth nothing. So here is my definition of culture. It is the quality of the one on, thousands and thousands and thousands of one-on-one interactions that occur in a company every single day. If the quality of those interactions are healthy, so goes the culture. If those interactions are not healthy, they're toxic or they're full of conflict or they're full of avoidance because people don't want to do conflict or whatever, if they're full of that, then your toxic is culture. Your culture is toxic, excuse me. Yeah. So the thousands and thousands and thousands of one-on-one interactions every day. So that's good news and it's bad news. The good news is that it's something simple that we can work on. Because bottom line, if you want to have competitive advantage today where culture matters more than anything else statistically correlated to bottom line business results if you want to have an impact on that you have your organization has to outbehave the competition absolutely the and bad news of that is that means that we have to learn what are the skills required for people to live like that inside of this company and in so in and um, so few places yeah individuals, uh, whether as young as elementary school, middle school, high school, or in college or early career, we're not taught those skills. No, you're right. And that's the challenge because they're not innate. Nobody is born with them. If you have grown up in a family that for some reason had good relational skills, hallelujah for you because you're ahead of the game. But that, it, but, but if you didn't grow up with that, then you have to intentionally learn them. And if, and the, other challenge for all of us is that they are not taught in elementary school. To your point, they're not taught in high school. There are only a few college majors that even touch on the subject. So you're not likely to run into it. And if you don't run into them, then you are already functioning at a deficit and you just don't know it. So in terms of, you know, I think um, relationship skills, conflict management, um, being willing to lean in to conflict, right? Being willing to not view conflict as a negative, but a necessary. And that, you know, if we have two different people who have two different thought systems and belief systems, you're going to naturally have some type of conflict, right? That's right. So relationship skills. Can we talk a little bit about what are some relationship skills that if I'm listening today, 
I can think, you know, how am I doing there? How am I improving there? How do I check it? How do I evaluate it where I'm at in that space? And how do I find out if I'm um, adding to a negative environment versus creating a quality, um, engaged, healthy environment? Oh, Michael, such good questions. I would say that the, it, that there are four pretty essential skills, and you and the problem with them is that you they're not linear. They are linear. You cannot do them at the same time, meaning that you have to establish respect first, and then try to build trust because it will not work any other way. And it's not that I don't think you're talented enough to do it. It's that people won't let you do it. So if you if I don't feel like you respect me and I don't feel like you value me as a person, I am not going to build trust with you. I don't care how hard you try or how trustworthy you are. So these skills. Uh, so the first would be respect. How do you how do you ensure that every interaction that you have, the person comes away from there feeling valued? Because respect is about their value. I see their value. And the reality, the truth is that it's extremely simple. It's just not very easy. And so um, and we have a pattern in this country, and maybe it's around the world, I don't really know. But in this country in particular, we have a belief that when someone comes to us, say, and describes a problem at work, that the best solution, best thing we can do for them is either ask more questions or give them advice or tell them how to solve their solution. We believe that that's the most helpful thing that can occur. In order for us to be able to build respect in every interaction, we have to get rid of that belief and replace it with the belief that if I don't say something, when this person comes in and describes their problem, if I don't say something to them, say something back to them that helps them know whether I understand them or not, then I've missed the opportunity to build respect because here's the sentence of the day, People who feel under, feel understood feel valued. So we have to make sure that in every interaction, the person coming to us feels understood before we offer advice, solutions, or counsel, or questions. And the way that we do that is very, very simple. Listen well to them. When they're done speaking, the very first thing you say is what's the most critical thing in that conversation. If the first thing you say is advice, you've lost your opportunity. If the first thing you say is putting back into your own words what you've heard them say for clarity so that they can adjust anything, we don't. We us do a lot of assuming in this country that we're understanding exactly what people are saying to us, and that is simply not true. And when we don't understand what they say, we fix the wrong problem. So it takes less than three minutes. They've come and they've spoken to you. The first thing out of your mouth is... Let me make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. And then you repeat, put into your own words what you, the essence of what you've heard them say. The minute you do that and they say, yes, that's it exactly, they feel valued and you've hit a home run. If everybody in the organization is doing that in every conversation throughout your organization, respect will, will soar. Then you're in a position to be able to build trust with each other. There are... the the problem with the, in the trust space is that there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of things that tear trust down that we do regularly that or don't do regularly, um, so we are breaking it down innocently. So we need to be aware of what breaks it down and then what builds it up. Once we are aware, we can adopt. 
the third thing that needs to occur in any organization and will naturally occur if trust and respect are a part of your culture is that distortion, we all have distortions. We all believe things that are not true. And a lot of those distortions are, um, what would I call it? They are self-limiting. Organizations also have them. There are beliefs that are not true about them that keep them stuck. There are people in your organization who are seeing those distortions. And if there's a freedom in the, to speak, freedom to risk in your organization, as we've described before, then they will tell you. They will dare to say to you, I believe that we believe this, and this is not true about our company, and if we can get over this belief, here's what we could do. And then suddenly you've got a distortion that's eliminated in your organization and keeps you for the, helps you then to be able to grow. Individual lives have those as well. And then conflict and confrontation. We come had in. a um, podcast just a few weeks ago that um, Mike Kelly said that if each of us can realize the conditioning that exists in our own lives and make yes. a promise to address that, get uncomfortable, yes. it can make a difference in our world. Amen. I'm with him 100%. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. what we're talking about. That's wonderful. Well, Cher, um, the last two years, you and I had the opportunity to invest time with uh, many middle market CEOs and presidents and, um, and really helping them elevate their leadership, focusing in on culture, chemistry, character, and competency. And we brought a lot of this great impact and conversation to the forefront. Um, it was so encouraging that these were the leaders who want to invest in their culture in a healthy way. Yes. These are the leaders who know that it starts with them understanding their own self and bringing that into their organization mm -hmm. and leading well every day. Um, what were some of the, the takeaways that you felt from that experience? I think um, I was hugely impressed with the people that were participating in that. I, I was impressed with their eagerness to continue to learn and grow. I was uh, very, very impressed that they were not just interested in theory or they were just not interested in new ideas. They were interested in immediate implementation. And so the more concrete our conversation got, I felt the more they benefited. Um, the thing, and then listening to each other, and listen, for me to listen in on the conversation with these leaders as they were chewing on the material that we brought. Um, there is just a, I was so encouraged that in this country we have got leaders of multi-international organizations who are people seeking to live lives of integrity. And anything that we can do to help one another to walk in integrity, the more, um, more we're going to be able to change our culture, have a positive influence on it. And, and we spoke a little bit about the, the uh, word integris and yes. the kind of the whole, you know, where does, we talk a lot about it at the Talent Magnet Institute, helping leaders succeed in relationships, yes. work, community, and life, mm -hmm. and thinking about the holistic angle of their impact, right? And the way you are in your personal life shows up in work and vice versa. And mm. too many people try to compartmentalize themselves yeah. and therefore are unauthentic to themselves <sighs> and what God intended them to be and to others around them. Can you share a little bit about the thought of being fully integrous? Mm -hmm. 
Well, that word comes from integer, which is a whole number, um, and integrity is a person who is a whole person, meaning that they are the same in front of the cameras as they are in their bedroom. They're the same. They, they are authentic through and through with who they are. And so you don't have to wonder, which boss am I getting today? You know that this person is the same, will treat you the same as they would treat the CEO from their best customer. A person of integrity is a person who is not only whole in um, in the way that we often think of it, which is either relational or moral integrity, but they are also whole in organizational integrity, meaning that they make um, the things that the decisions that they make company wide are are full of integrity as it relates to everyone in the company, not just the leadership team. Um, then we also have competence integrity. And this is one of the things I noticed showed up in these leaders that we that you're talking about that we met with. They are not, um, they were so comfortable in what they could do and what they couldn't do. What their competencies are and what they aren't. A leader who is is whole enough to be able to accept that there are some things that they are just not very good at. Um, there, It's unlimited, the potential there, because they will seek after those who are good at things that they're not good at. So, ha- But but person who is not integrous in the competence area will not be looking for that. They will not, they do not feel comfortable enough a- acknowledging something that they don't know, and they become a stumbling block for the organization. In terms of that people are going to hold us accountable as a leader to create a healthy culture, to make an impact. Um, we talk a little bit about that in terms of the accountability that I, as the leader listening today, should feel mm. for this conversation, right? And I, I'll just give a quick example. Um, I had the opportunity to give a, a speech back in 2014 in Arizona on becoming a talent magnet. Um, and the thoughts and the solution and the process of what that means, um, which the Talent Magnet Institute is now putting into full force and helping organizations invest in. In that, I I spoke about corporate culture and I shared you as the example in Mm -hmm. my life that has helped me bring really crystallize the thought around what I need to be as a leader and what people expect me to be and should, um, should expect me to be as a leader. Um, in that, I shared the copy of your book, The Three Impossible wow. Promises. Um, one of a few of those CEOs in the room at that talk read the book. One, in fact, read it before the weekend was over. So I gave my my speech on a Thursday, um, flew back on a Friday. By Monday morning, I had I think it was Sunday morning. I had a commentary on the book because <laughs> I gave out <laughs> copies of your book to the audience. Um, and it had a profound impact on mm. the leaders. And that was the big accountability point of this CEO was that this helped me understand mm. that I, as the leader, am ultimately accountable for the culture we have. That's right. And and I need to step up and I need to be the one that creates change versus feel like I'm just a part of it. Yeah. I'm the CEO of this organization. I'm accountable for it. So can we talk a little bit about the accountability that a leader Mm. should feel, those listening today should feel of the culture that their organization has and the 
even the committees and boards that they're on yeah. or the household that they lead or um, and that they're a part of. Mm-hmm. That's really good. One of the leaders in culture and understanding of culture is Edgar Schein from MIT. And he said that basically the only real role that leaders have is to build and maintain the culture. Um, and so I think he would agree with what you're saying. Um, and in this accountability piece and in this uh, responsibility of creating and maintaining the culture, the biggest challenge I see in the work that I do um, is that the employees are the best authority on what the culture actually is, because the CEO doesn't office have a view doesn't often have a view of it. The very things that the CEO needs to know, the very truth that they need to know about how things are going in the culture area in the organization are the very things hardest for the people to tell them. So my biggest, the thing that keeps me awake at night, if you want to know the truth, this is kind of my hot button area, is that there's a dilemma in our uh, in our culture right now with leaders who are awakening to the reality that culture is the number one, like I said before, statistically correlated factor directly connected to bottom line results. Um, and the research is all showing this, and they are take, picking up, the leaders are trying to pick up responsibility for creating the culture, but they have no ability to see what the culture actually is because the people aren't honest with them. The people, however, in their organization are, are recognizing that, that that's their job to maintain the culture and to make it better, the culture that they often can't see or feel or touch. The people are starting in an organization where the culture is not what they wish it would be, will become angry at the CEO or the leadership team or whoever is in charge there to create, because they're not doing it, the thing that they don't even know is broken. So this, this, is, this is the biggest challenge uh, for leaders today is you can't work on a culture that you don't know what it is. Um, and so my encouragement would be determine a way to figure out what it, what your culture is. And, in, and basically that means is find a way to hear the collective voice of the employees so that you know where the, where the outages are. Um, so you really can't hold yourself accountable to something that you don't have all the ability to do because you don't have the information. Once that information uh, is available to you, then you have to determine um, what kind of an investment are you willing to make to turn the culture around or the places in the culture that are not working for you and your company. It takes an investment of time and it takes an investment of money. But the biggest investment for a leader is even harder for them often than the money or the time, and that is, is that it takes a ton of courage. For a CEO to really get honest information about what it's like in their organization and then do something about it takes a tremendous amount of courage. They feel very vulnerable because they are in effect, they do in effect feel responsible for the current culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are so many organizations and hopefully, again, if there's one of you in the audience today that you can take away from that um, this is getting, un- I mean, it's being willing to be uncomfortable and Amen. it takes courageous leadership. You know, if you look at many organizations or a, a, even a leadership team think they know. Yes. 
um, but they have no idea. Yes, right, exactly. And the challenge that you just described that employees and individuals know where they used to be and what they don't want to experience again, right? Yes, so that's right. therein lies a significant impact into your retention and turnover numbers. Absolutely. Right? People don't want to sit still in an environment that's toxic. Amen. And especially if the leaders around it aren't willing to actually listen to what's creating the toxicity right. in that in that organization. You know, so many um, leaders that we've interviewed on this podcast, they're taking intent focus on creating the healthiest environments, not just for the people that they employ, but in many cases, the community that they're in yes. as a whole, right, and its impact. And not only does it impact them, but the wonderful blessing of this is that if they begin to work on culture and impact the, their experience at work, every employee takes that home with them. And families are healed and relationships in families are healed. It is an unbelievably, the impact of a healthy culture in an organization has enormous, what I would consider to be an eternal impact mm -hmm. on every employee in there. It could be the greatest impact you have on your life and the lives around you. It will beyond be. just what you're creating and servicing and manufacturing and providing. That's exactly um, right. Because it, it is transformative. It, it is, is transformative. transformative. Yeah. The um, So share with us a little bit more about um, Three Impossible Promises. Hmm. We'll provide a link to the book in our show notes. Okay. Um, if you're around Centennial long enough, you might get a copy because we <laughs> tend to provide a lot of copies because we believe mm -hmm. in the, the message and the profound... Um, story that people mm -hmm. can find themselves in. Can you share a little bit about what you led to publishing that book and what that journey was like? You bet. I, I published the book out of self-preservation <laughs> because I was um, I, I came out of the gym experience with leaders from around the city and region primarily who um, had seen the Olympic experience, had recognized that these two women had impacted an industry worldwide, and hope began to bubble in them that maybe my business can be helped. And I think that the best thing, one of the best things that that um, experience did for businesses is that some who were hopeless had new hope that it could change. We began to hear from those people. And so in 2001, then I started Perfect 10 Corporate Cultures to kind of do in other organizations what I had done and learned about through the gym experience. Um, and so what I discovered, I hit, I hit a barrier head on. Um, I did not know that the business world did not know the term culture as it related to the environment in the organization. So when I started to talk to CEOs and leadership teams about culture, they thought I was talking about ethnicity or the arts. And so I had to back up and recognize that I had a lot of education to do of the leaders around this city and this region if I was going to be able to help them. So I put my business on hold and started a speaking business. And I did nothing but speak for the first three or four years and do some coaching that came out of that. But my, my speech was the message of the gym and the understanding of culture. Um, eventually, I began to get enough uh, critical mass of leaders who understood about culture that we were uh, able to move forward. But at the end of every single speech or every single time I had a conversation with someone, the first question they ask is, 
what it, where is a book I can read about this? I need a deeper understanding than just this one conversation. And I never had a thing, I didn't have a thing to give them. The first research that even indicated culture mattered didn't come out until 2009. And I'm talking 2001 to 2008. So, um, so that's why we wrote the book. <laughs> because we had what we feel felt was a plan. We had an understanding of what culture was. We had a plan that worked, and we had ha we have one example of how well it can work, and the impact that it can have in it, over an industry, not just a company. So there was a pretty significant success story there that we could uh, leverage. Um, and so we wrote the book primarily so I didn't have to have all those conversations because there were more than I could handle personally. That's wonderful, and a way to continue to transcend the message and reach yeah. more people. Um, it's been a great resource. You know, it's a great, a great, easy read. Yeah, very um, easy read. To And again, to be able to find yourself in. So we'll make sure we provide a copy, um, a link to a copy in the show notes. Thank you. Um, as it relates to the commonality with experts and research, you know, people are um, world leaders in the talent space are finally recognizing that Corporate culture and employee experience yep, yep. is at the top, right? What Hallelujah. an employee experience is. And, you know, in our work of becoming a talent magnet and the solutions that we provide there, really looking at development and retention, um, you know, growth, change, and challenge. People want to grow. They do. People want to experience change if it's handled in the right way, if it helps them to grow. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, in the retention space, we talk about meaningful work. Mm. You know, how do you connect an individual's goals yeah. to your organization goals and help them and provide an environment that allows them to achieve their personal goals yes. through the work that they're doing and they align there too, right? So it's a, you know, double, you know, creating um, equal alignment with all things and finding the right people that do that. Um, and then that personal, professional feedback and voice matters, mm. right? Back to if people feel understood, they feel valued. Amen. Yes, and exactly. And, you know, in the world of performance management and engagement and retention, if people feel understood, they feel valued. Yes. If you care about them, they'll care about you. That's right. Um, and so many organizations are looking at, you know, performance, performance, performance. Those that are winning... Mm -hmm. In an environment like today, from a talent standpoint, are those who are who know that these aspects are very important. And even if they're not all the way there and they're at their finish line, um, they're willing to invest in that topic. And they'll, you know, they address the culture and the experience individuals are having yes. to help fix other aspects um, because those are symptoms right. of these areas not going as well. Are there... Um, are there example an example that you might be able to share that can help our listener really hear kind of the profound impact on performance and growth mm. and profitability mm. by investing and being intentional in corporate culture? Yeah, um, thank you for the opportunity to share one. Um, we got a call a couple of years ago, three years ago, I believe it is now in August, from a, um, a president of a company manufacturing company in Ohio. Um, it's a family-owned business. And he basically, and so we met and talked, and he basically told me then that the company had lost uh, one of their biggest clients, that they were 
unable to keep their most valuable talent. They had lost seven of their top thought leaders within the last six weeks. They knew that this was August 1, roughly, and they knew that they were not even going to break even by the end of the year, according to the projections. The stress that that was created in the family, the extended family, uh, the president and his wife and children, um, their uh, family relationships were very, very rocky because of all the stress this was creating. But it went even further than that into mothers-in-laws and father-in-laws and that kind of thing, cousins. Uh, so the whole family was in disarray, um, largely because of the struggling that was going on inside the company and the impact it had on the family members working there. Um, that's when that's where we started with them. And um, this leader is extremely courageous and basically said, um, we don't know what to do. We've tried everything that we know, so we need help, and whatever you recommend is what we're going to do. Um, and that takes a ton of courage because he's going to be the most vulnerable of all as the president of the company. Uh, we began to work with them. And um, I got word in February after they had closed their year-end books, um, I got a letter from him. And the letter basically said, I need you to know that we've only been working together five and a half months, six months. Um, but I need you to know what's happened since then. And he went on to talk about the fact that his family relationships were better than they've ever been. Um, the extended family relationships were mending. Um, that the company, he had just gotten the final figures at, when the books were closed for that year, um, and the company not only did not uh, break even, um, but even with our fee, he was quick to point out, even with our fee, they ended up with a surplus of over $700,000. And we're starting this year um, in a much different place. And he was just sending a letter of gratitude for us um, we continue to work there, and in fact, and we're still uh, in there in a very minor way um, now. Um, but I just heard him speak actually last week, and he had a slide which talked about. He talks about their culture transformation and the training that had that occurred, and the way that they worked it into every level of the organization. Um, and they are now um, instead of an eight million dollar company. And they are approaching a $30 million company. Their profits, uh, their revenues are up by more than 50%, and their profit is up over 1,000%. When we get out of people's way, when they, when they are in an environment where they're free to contribute, the, I think the, one of the biggest shocks we had was when, after we recognized uh, there are some benchmarks that you look back on a project and can see are making a difference. One, one day I was in the office with him when a line worker came in who he ran a machine. He came in and he said, you know, you, get, you gave us a teaching on gross margin. And he said, I'm, I, that got me to thinking. He said, I, I believe that I can make one adjustment to my machine and I can increase the decrease the time it takes by 15 seconds. And in this industry, that's a big deal. Um, and he said, Will, what will, what kind of an impact will that have on the gross margin of the, my part, the parts that I'm making? The accountant was able to tell him. He not only did that, but he went around to every machine on his day off. He came in, worked every machine until he could figure out how to make each machine more efficient. 
that caught on and others began to do the same. That, that, that's the freedom to be able to think for myself and to recognize that my voice matters. And if we don't tap into all that is in all of our people, if we don't believe that there is excellence and greatness in every single person, and if we don't provide a way for that greatness to show up in our company, we're leaving all of that on the, we're just leaving it on the table. We don't benefit from it. I can't imagine what could happen in companies who tap into the greatness of every single person in that organization. I don't think we've seen anything like what we would see. We hope that through the work that you're doing, the work that we're doing, yeah. that organizations begin to realize that they're not just bringing out the best of their employees, they're bringing out the best of all things yes. into the world in which they live. I love the the thought process that resonates with me so well that you and I have talked about for a long time, that when you create a healthy environment in your workplace, you create the best environment, you create a healthier team, absolutely, which then creates healthier families, which then creates a healthier community or a healthier world. So there is a way that each one of us listening as a business owner, as a leader who is accountable and is responsible, this is how you can make a profound impact is investing in the environment that you lead and the communications that you have and the ability to help people feel understood that their work is meaningful, that their life is meaningful and give that particular person who walked into that office that day um, felt the authority to yes. be able to step up because his voice matters. Exactly. Mike. And and to think about how long and how often, um, how long people sit with those thoughts and never share them, and how often organizations never bring out the best because they don't provide the autonomy to their employees to provide that. Exactly. Um, you know, it's such a powerful example. It is. It's untapped resources. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we're always looking for those, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- what I would love every leader, every time you look at any employee in your company, look at them as an untapped resource. Not fully tapped, maybe would be a better way to say it. I wonder what would happen if that were a fully tapped resource. Absolutely. Lynn, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there an additional one thing you would like to share with our listeners or to reiterate a thought that you've provided so far? Um, There's one caution I would give. Um, Be sure not to, you know, if we we get gung-ho on culture and we begin to talk about the culture and we begin to talk about behaving um, uh, with integrity and things like that, um, I think one of the greatest challenges for us is that um, I, I would encourage leaders not to start those conversations, encouraging people to do something that you haven't given them the skill to do. One of the worst uh, mistakes leaders make is that one, where they're asking where they ask employees to do something without giving them the resources to do it. So recognize that in order to be able to live that kind of a life, they need skills they don't have. So be cautious about asking them to do something without giving them access to those resources. Excellent. That's great coaching and advice. Thank you. And here's to those listening for your courageous leadership, for being willing to invest in the time that you spent today with Lynn and I. And, um, and we look forward to being a continued resource for you. Uh, thank you for joining the Talent Magnet Institute podcast, Lynn. It's been a pleasure to have you in the studio and to have you in my life. And I look forward to our continued impact together. Thank you, Mike.
Companies and teams with authentic leaders attract the best talent, are the most productive, and keep people around the longest. Are you an authentic leader? Go to talentmagnetinstitutepodcast.com slash authentic to find out if you're ticking all the boxes. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios, and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Sipple Jr. Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.